so that was a that was a very long reading. And you might say to yourself, what on earth was going on in all of that? How many of you felt like you could really follow along the structure of the argument and the points Jesus was making? And this is an interesting, interesting monologue that Jesus has, and it is absolutely packed with content. It's absolutely packed. He was making a whole lot of points. The context is he's healed this guy on the Sabbath. And now he's in conflict with the religious authorities, the religious leaders who are really ticked off with him, that he is, he's healing people on the Sabbath, he's breaking the rules, and uh, this is a problem. And then they get ticked off because he makes some outrageous claims about his own identity. So I thought what we'd do is think about this simply, try and pull out from these, all these verses, a couple of key ideas. So we're going to look at who is, who does Jesus say he is? Who is he? What does he do? And how on earth can we believe him and trust him? So who is he? What does he do? And how can we believe all this about him? So who is he? This is really significant. And this is the heart of the conflict with the authorities. It's the heart of the gospel of John unpacking for us who is Jesus. And I would say for any of us, the answer we give to the question, who is Jesus, is incredibly significant, incredibly significant. It changes everything, the, the answer we give to that. It changes everything about our lives, how we live, how we see the world, what we prioritize, how we feel about ourselves, how we feel about our work, our family. The, the, quest, the answer we give to that question is very, very significant. So let's have a look at what Jesus says. Well, uh, he's someone who works. <laughs> we'll go through from top to bottom and pick out some ideas, right? My father is always at work to this very day, and I too am working. Okay, so what does that mean? Well, work, work is a good thing. God the Father has worked. He created the world, and he continues to work. Jesus works. Work is not something that is a result of sin. It's not like the, the essence of humanity, the essence of our lives is to just sit on a beach in Fiji and do nothing and have everybody wait on us. I mean, that's a nice experience for a time. But actually, what we're made to do is we're made to work because we're made in the image of God who is a worker. Right now, work doesn't have to just be paid employment. There's all kinds of work that we do. But if you understand that Jesus is a worker, it starts to give your own work, what you do Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, dignity and value. It's not something to run from or escape from. It gives dignity and value to the work you do at, at home. I used to think this when I, you know, when, you, when you're doing the ironing, you know, what is the work of ironing? Well, the ironing, and I, I know in this area, no one does ironing, but you know, occasionally I'm tempted to. And what ironing does is or you're bringing order out of chaos. You're pushing out the creases and you're making it look beautiful, right? That's God's kind of work. From Genesis 1 and 2, the world was formless and void. There was chaos and then God brings order. And then he says to you and me, go and bring order out of chaos. So you can find dignity and value in all your work, depending on how you answer the question, who is Jesus? If Jesus isn't a worker, if Jesus isn't connected to God, 
then work really just becomes something we try and escape from, make as much money as you can, as quickly as you can, and then escape from it, do as little as possible, or work then becomes the, the, the most important thing in your life, the ultimate thing, and that's, that's also problematic. Now, in this little dialogue, what they discovered, uh, verse 18, this, for this reason they tried all the more to kill him, not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. The Jewish leaders were very smart monotheists. They, they, they believed there was only one God still at the absolute center of Jewish identity is the Shema, Shema Yisrael, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is one. It's one God. And here's Jesus coming along and he goes, not just, uh, you know, I'm working and I'm healing people on the Sabbath. That's bad enough. But he goes, no, actually, I'm equal to God. Oh, that is a big claim. That is a big claim. This little text here early in John's gospel is one of the earliest Trinitarian texts we have that sets up a whole new apprehension for you and for me of what God is like. So up until this time, as, as the Jewish people apprehended God, what they saw of God was, was one God, the monotheistic experience of God. Now, actually, God has always been triune, and even in the, Old, in the Hebrew scriptures, you can see that. But the, the people at the time, humanity up to this point, had not apprehended and not seen that, that, uh, that part of God's reality. Now Jesus comes and he reveals it so that people can start to see clearly that God is one God, but God also consists of three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. Okay. So Jesus makes himself equal with God. And then there follows this great, lots of discussion here about the, the relationship of the father and the son. And it uh, goes on and on about this. Okay, so, so you go, okay, well, Mark, that's awesome. You might not be thinking that. But, you know, who is Jesus? It's the question that we're asking. He works. And uh, he is God. That's what the text goes on to claim. So you go, well, okay, what does that mean? Well, let me, let me make this point very carefully. The doctrine, what is uncovered for us, if Jesus is God, is, is of monumental practical significance. What do I mean by that? It's monumentally practically because what it means is reality is relational. Okay, what it means is reality is relational. The other way of putting this is at the heart of divinity, at the heart of ultimate reality is a community of persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, as we'll see. Okay, so you go, well, why is that important? Well, you see why that is important is because in our culture, we tend to think that ultimate reality is the individual. So I'm an individual, you're an individual. If we strip it all back, it's me and it's you and it's my desires and your desires. And ultimate reality is individual and ultimate reality is material. So one of the 
ways we see the world in our culture is we struggle to see anything non-material and we think, oh, what's ultimate is the physical, the material, what I can see, taste, touch, and feel. And so therefore what's ultimate in my life, how I, what's ultimately good for me is the accumulation of as much good material stuff as I can possibly get. Looking after my material body, making sure I accumulate enough money and material goods to keep me safe and happy and provided for. We pay great attention to the material and we think that's ultimate. Now, if ultimate reality is relational, what are relationships material? Or let me put it another way. Can you see love? You can't see love between two people. You can see the way that love moves us to act and the way we act in love, but the actual bond, the actual thing that connects all of us is not material. It's actually spiritual. It's non-relational. And that's exactly what the Bible says is the very essence of God, a non-material community of people who love each other. So here's what that means. If you think Jesus is right, and if this is the way the world works, it changes how you see everything you see. Because now, what matters most in my life and what matters most in your life are the relationships that we're in. And the material reality that we live in is there to serve the relationships, not the other way around. Simply put, our temptation is to use people to get things, right? We use people to get things. The way that we should live if we think Jesus is God, and this describes the way the world really works, is we use things in the service of people and relationships. That's what it's all about. Now, if, and that changes that changes so many decisions we make along the way. Um, the next question you say, okay, well, we're all, okay, Mark, maybe I can see that relationships are, reality is all about relationships. Okay, but what kind of relationships? And this is where things get very interesting, at least to me, maybe to you. I'm going to try and make it interesting to you. Okay, so, because there's the, the way we broadly understand relationships today um, you can think of it, the answer to this question, okay, reciprocity, yeah, thanks, someone can read my handwriting here, um, okay, there is a strand in our culture that says, okay, yeah, we're all in relationships. But the essence of these relationships is that they're actually all about power. And you can draw the intellectual origins of this back to Nietzsche. And it flows up through people like Marx on the left, Foucault on the left, but you know what? On the right, you get it as well. The stream from Nietzsche takes us into the right, into the annex movement, into fascism on the right. 
that says it's all about power relationships and the exercise of pure power over others is the the how you run a good state so both on our current left and the current right the thing that they both have is a fundamentally thinking that or seeing all of reality and all the relationships in terms of power we see this you know on the in you can see this in some feminist instead of having life being about a conflict between capital and labor between the bourgeoisie and the working class like class warfare there are some ways some people who see it as about gender warfare and it's all about power between the genders now here's the thing are our relationships really all about power well no you know it's really interesting and and all this depends on the answer you give to the question who is jesus because if jesus isn't god if ultimate relationships are not about reality and we have to just work out what our relationships are like without reference to jesus we will inevitably end up saying actually you know pursuing power for its own sake over others is a really smart strategy but jesus offers a very different vision he says you know what ultimate reality is about relationships of love and mutual reciprocity mutuality so the father and the son love each other and we don't have time to get into it all but you can read through this text and you see well jesus jesus loves the father the father loves the son jesus only does what the father wants and the father loves the son so ultimate reality is relational and their relationships of mutuality and love and reciprocity so you go okay mark those are big words what does that mean in practice well let's talk about partners marriage type relationships there is a strand in our culture that in conservative circles likes to see marriage relationships as somewhat hierarchical you may have encountered this in various churches that won't be named where the, the husband is the head of the wife the husband is the head of the family the husband leads you know it's there's all kinds of justifications given for this right and we can argue we can discuss that later but the way this often gets presented is well and i've had these i can't cannot tell you how many discussions i've had with people about this over the years well mark at the end of the day if you're a husband and a wife and you're and you can't make a decision you're deadlocked well then someone has to make the decision right so what are you saying on the basis of gender a gender hierarchy the person who makes the decision is the husband the man that actually means there's a difference in power and fundamentally at the most critical important places when you're deadlocked in your relationship the power goes to the man and you go right-wing conservative christians are marxists i just throw that out polemically i've i felt like that would be quite a funny thing to say and margo begged me not to say it paul said i shouldn't say it but i just couldn't resist because it's it's and it's not they're not really i mean but the structure of seeing it is about power now by the way i would say any objective student of social science and human relationships will confirm in fact unless you have a political agenda influenced by nietzsche foucault marx fascism hardline marxist feminism gender hierarchical power dynamics in your own marriage or church 
what the social sciences clear these days is relationships for, for marriage and relationships to work best, there needs to be an equality of power. It doesn't work when you have an entrenched power difference. Because at the heart of reality, there is no entrenched power difference in the community of the Trinity. Father, the Son, and Spirit mutually support, su submit to each other, live in relation to the reciprocity. Now, let me, let's extend that a little further. Do you know it's also true that relationships of reciprocity, of mutual reciprocity and service, actually make, are actually the source of the greatest power to achieve useful things in a system. Yes. Reciprocity, what does it mean? It's a word you've never heard. You'd like to know what it means. Thanks. So reciprocity is give and take. It's you, you ask a question, I answer it. You, you, you do something for me, I do something for you. So there's this constant dance. So one way of thinking of it is, uh, so this is power. Influence flows that away. Reciprocity is this. Yeah, love others, treat others the way you want to be treated. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. So that's so these cycles of we're embedded in a web of relations. We love each other. Okay. Now the pursuit of pure power, while it seems appealing, actually doesn't really work because it flies against the face of reality. Primatologists, people who study apes, have discovered this in baboon troops. This is from a podcast I was listening to during the week, Jordan Peterson talking about this, which is fascinating. We all think in baboon troops, you have the alpha male who exercises pure power. And that's how we're all meant to organize ourselves in hierarchies of dominance and power, right? Now, some baboon troops do that, and you have the alpha male. There's an, but but the, the power, the reign of those alpha males is very short. Because as soon as that alpha male shows any sign of weakness, guess what happens? Two of the younger males that he has terrorized to get that position of power will literally tear him apart. Literally, I mean, the animals are very brutal. Anyone who thinks they can see God's character by looking at nature is only looking at a very narrow part of nature. Okay, so you got to tear them apart. There's an, there are more stable leadership emerges in baboon troops when you have smaller baboons who become the alpha male. And you know how they become an enduring, lasting alpha male? by being the most relational baboon in the troop, exercising the most reciprocal relationships. And they measure that by how much time you spend. One baboon grooms another baboon. So the baboons who go around grooming each other and then allowing themselves to be groomed, who gives as much as they take, actually finds positions of enduring influence and power. Isn't that interesting? So baboons give the right answer to the question, who is Jesus? So this is, this is not just abstract, this is not just theory. So the question is, live and embrace and lean into with every bit of your being a, a vision of your life that is about relationships of mutual love and reciprocity and service and say, that's ultimate, not what you earn, not what you achieve directly, not what other people you know, not your status in the first instance. What matters is how you love people, how you serve them, how we build healthy relationships of mutuality. And we build that and embed that in all parts of our lives. So that's who Jesus is. And of course, you see, 
that has implications. The ultimate example, of course, is Jesus, if, if he is God and he claims to be God, he's a, he's, he's a God who incarnates perfectly what mutual love looks like because he comes and dies for us. You know, it's the ultimate picture of this, right? This is how every other God in the world works. And this is how Christianity works. This is how Jesus works. It's very different. It's amazing. I like it's, we, we just all take it for granted, but it's radically different to any other religious conception that has ever existed and any other way any society has ever organized themselves. There's a, an English historian, Tom Holland, who's written a wonderful book called Dominion. And he was an ancient historian. He grew up as a Christ, grew up in sort of a Christian family with his grandma reading him Bible stories. And then he went to Oxford and he studied a bunch of stuff. And, and as he studied ancient pagan, the ancient pagan world, what he realized was it's a vastly different world to the Christian world that we lived in. I mean, completely unthinkably different. And his point is the problem we have in our culture is we all live as Christians. We all think, and maybe you are feeling this now, there's nothing radical in what I'm saying about this. But, you know, Holland's point is, it's because this has been so successful in shaping our culture. And it's, but it's unique. I mean, pagan cultures, cultures untouched by Christianity, do not have this. They're about honor, about shame, about power, about control. Nothing about service and love is the central ethic. And we need to make sure, so here's a political statement, trigger warning, here comes some politics and some culture war language. We need to make sure that we don't lose this vision. And, and as followers of Jesus, as we move from our Christian moorings and heritage, what you see increasingly in our culture is the language of power and domination and the practice of power and domination from the right and from the left. It's not a particular political agenda. It's the it's the orientation of human beings when they move away from understanding who Jesus is and a commitment to the vision of the world, the way it's described in scripture. We move from that. And what we're left with is relationships of power on the right and on the left. And as, as if we're serious about following Jesus, we need to say, no, no, that is, that is not how we want to organize our society. We don't want, we don't want a oppression, the oppression of uh, a politically correct, I don't know, cancel. I mean, what's cancel culture? It's just the exercise of mob power, right? What's the diversity and inclusion kind of woke HR department? It's the exercise of raw power. And then, of course, on the right, what you get is, well, we, we want to oppose that. We want to march. We want the power of, we want, we want raw power to oppose that. And so you see movements to the right to stand against that. And you go, hey, somewhere in the middle of that political space, people who follow Jesus need to say, well, you know, pick your political, are you center-right, center-left, hard-left, hard-right? It doesn't matter if you're a Christian as long as what you embrace and live is that relationships are of ultimate importance. 
and not power. And what relates and what connects us is reciprocity and mutual love across the political divide that any community, any society is woven together by relationships. And we don't ever want to just conceptualize or conceive of those as power about power. Now that I can't give you a how to vote card on that basis. But what I can try to give us all is a how to think card by which we can then assess and try and influence the political movements and culture of our day. I think that's really significant politically. And that comes from answer, the answer to this question, who is Jesus? Well, what does he do? What does Jesus do? Well, he saves us, right? The father, whatever he sees his father, he can only do what he sees his father doing because whatever the father does, the son does also for the son. Lo father loves the son and shows him all he does. Yes. And he will show him even greater works than these so that you'll be amazed. And he goes on and on talking about this. So this is, this is what Jesus does. He heals all these relationships very truly. Whoever hears my word and believes in me has eternal life will not be judged, but has crossed over from death to life. So what happens when you, when you trust Jesus is you, you actually experience eternal life now. Do you notice the verbs there? It's not if you believe in him, you will have eternal life. He says, you know, he's talking to these Jewish people who want to kill him. And he says, if you believe me, you'll have this life now. And having it now means you'll be free from any fear of judgment in the future, but you have it now. Some of you subscribe to our email update and you might even have read what I wrote there this week. And I said, here's the interesting thing. Have you ever thought about this? Christianity is not so much about getting us into heaven as about getting heaven into us. Now, now, of course there is this, you know, we, that's what matters, right? That's what Jesus came to do. He came, he said, I've come and the kingdom of heaven is at hand. You can enter it. He's thrown open the gates to eternal life now for you and for me, not as some future sitting on a cloud playing harps, kind of having some weird disembodied spiritual experience that I'm sure is very nice, but, but actually to live with Jesus now in the kingdom of the heavens now, to be in a place now where we live in this deeply cooperative, intimate moment by moment relationship with God where he loves us and we love him. And as he loves us and we love him, we can love each other. And that's our experienced day-to-day -day reality. So the question is um, how much of heaven has gotten into you? See, we, and, and, and how do you get heaven? How does heaven get into you? Well, it's by trusting Jesus. Well, what does it mean to trust Jesus? It means to trust that the way Jesus describes reality and the way he manifests God in this world is actually the way it is. And then you live that way. Yeah, how, do you, how do you live in heaven now? Well, it's by believing that Jesus describes reality truly and accurately who he is and how we live. So how much of heaven is in you? How much of that is your experience? How much of that is my experience? I find this one of the most interesting and challenging thoughts as I get older. 
there is nothing more important. I just, it, it's becoming so increasingly clear to me. I'm, well, why have I missed this for the last 30 years? There's really nothing more important in life than learning to live with God in the presence of God moment by moment. And it, and it brings, like, if that relationship of equality and mutuality and reciprocity is true of God and me now, well, that's like, how do I live into that? How do I experience more of that? And that, because everything else goes, everything else goes. Your relation, like, everything gets picked apart and pulled apart by time and chance. All the things when you're young, you look forward to this will be, and you know, now it's all going to go. But what becomes increasingly as, as the things of this world go, grow strangely dim, you know, you realize that, that there is nothing, nothing more wonderful and more dignity giving and life affirming, nothing that, nothing that fills all of your life with value than actually doing it all with heaven in from a place of living in heaven now with god you see your job your your paid employment will go well then what's left well you and god your physical health will go at varying degrees of rapidity and then what's left well you and god your relationships you know you have kids and and then they go it's the cruelty of parenting you do your job well, and then they grow up and they leave you. Unless you live in Sydney, in which case they can never afford to leave you. <laughs> so yay for Sydney. <laughs> but in all, so what I'm experiencing, and, I, and maybe I just, I'm just saying, I'm just experiencing as, at this stage of my life, I think, wow, the really, it, it is so clearly true, if Jesus is right, that this is what matters more than anything else. And then I don't have to be afraid of judgment. It's not that I'm going to do it perfectly. I mean, hands up anyone here who loves perfectly, right? Living, this is the amazing news of Christianity. We can live in heaven now and heaven can come and dwell in us. Not because we're perfect, but because Jesus has made it possible. And now that, isn't that good news? Because I, I feel my failures to be christ-like and to live with god acutely oh my goodness oh my goodness but the good news is there's no judgment there's no judgment and this is the other thing that happens the longer you live the more you're aware of the things of your failures and your failings at a very simple level this is what happens as you get older for those of you who are young i'll tell you this we're running this parenting course a circular security. Brilliant. Every parent should do it. Everyone in church should do it. It is phenomenal. So I'm running this thing and, and Margot is helping me. And the problem is at the end of every session, we sit around the kitchen table with two feelings, one enormous joy and delight in the group and two just regret and guilt and shame at our, at our own woeful parenting when our kids were little. When we were going through it, we didn't know how inadequate we were with the perspective of 20 years. You go, geez, I could have done so much better, but you can't. Life has to be lived forward. It can only be made sense of looking backwards. I didn't know what I know then, what I know now. And you say, you just do what you can do. But then the older you get, the more you realize, geez, there is so much I could have done better. There, I am, 
wow, in every level. Oh my goodness. And then you come to Christianity and you go, geez, it's very, very good news that there's no judgment. It's very, very good news. It's very, 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 very good news. And so knowing that I'm not going to be judged gives me the courage to be vulnerable, to try and live a life of love now, even knowing I'm going to stuff it up, but I can risk it. I can try and live in the way of Jesus and live in the heavens now. And well, and then the question, of course, is how can I believe all this? It sounds too good to be true. How do you believe it? Well, there's lots of testimony about its truth. And that's the last section, which we, which Jesus goes into. He says, he testifies about it, but he knows that it's not just me. John the Baptist, who these early, these Jewish leaders took very seriously and thought was a great leader. John testified about Jesus. And then the very works that, the, that, Jesus is doing will testify about him. That is the miracles that he's going to perform and ultimately his resurrection, his death and resurrection. So how do I come to believe this stuff about Jesus? Well, there's plenty of evidence, plenty of testimony. The beauty is now, of course, we have all of the scriptures that testify about him. We have 2000 years of church history, people who testify about Jesus. It's still not easy to believe in Jesus. And this is the problem because believing in Jesus and we cycle right back to the start, what we believe in Jesus changes everything. That's what makes it so hard to believe in Jesus because it has profound, massive implications for every part of our life, right? Like, I, like it does what you believe, but you can believe all kinds of things about me. You could believe I'm a really nice guy. You could believe I'm a sociopath. You could believe I was born in Zambia. You could believe I was born in Sydney. You could believe my name is Mark. You could believe my name is Fred. At one level, some of those will have some implications for you. If you think my name is Fred and I'm a sociopath, but I'm presenting as Mark, who, you know, then you'll go, well, actually, you should probably find another church pretty darn quickly. But it doesn't really change your life. But if you think Jesus was God, gee, that changes everything. And that's why they, this is the critique that Jesus gives to, this, to the Jewish leaders. And it's brutal. It is brutal. You study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. These are the very scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. The problem is that believing and knowing is a moral act with consequences for our lives. And we choose, we choose what to believe. I think there's just plenty of intellectual, intellectual evidence, testimony to make it entirely reasonable to believe in God and to believe that Jesus is God. I don't think that's a problem intellectually. The big problem is the problem of the heart, because you see, to believe in Jesus means to choose to say, I'm not in control. Life's not about my power. I don't get to call the shots. Life is about this leap of faith into a whole way of living with, where I'm going to live with Jesus. I'm going to trust him. I'm going to learn how to do life from him. And we don't want to give up control. We don't want to give up our power. And we don't want to trust him. And that's the problem. So the only answer is surrender yield 
change your mind day by day. Like that's it, day by day, change. Okay, I'll follow you, Jesus. And that's a choice. But you know, it's a self-authenticating choice, right? Like the more you choose to follow Jesus, the more you find it to be true. It's like marriage. The more you live as a married person and you actually go all in on your marriage, the more you discover that it works and you love this person. The only way to actually love someone for like 40 or 50 years is to choose to love them every day. You can't have one foot out the door, one foot in the door and be ambivalent for all your life and try to hedge your bets. But no marriage works that way, right? So it's the same with Jesus. You kind of, you go all in and you trust him and you discover him to be trustworthy. Or you choose not to and you try and live life your own way and you live with those consequences. Um, but it's a choice. And, and our job as a church is to, our work is to help each of us here, whoever wants to be involved, to live with Jesus deeply, authentically, to live with heaven now, and then to try and help as many other people as possible experience that same reality uh, and say, well, have you thought about this? You know, it's not because it's not we have all the answers. It's because we found the one who does. You know, we're just a bunch of beggars who found the guy with food. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I thank you that you you are God. You've revealed yourself to us. Help us to have faith, to trust it, to believe in you, and then to live in this world the way you describe it to be and the way you've revealed it to be. Help us to have a whole lot more of heaven in our lives now than we could ever have dreamed possible. May we, may we surrender, may we yield to you this morning. And may we find in you eternal life now and complete freedom from judgment. And may this change everything. And may those we know and love come to know you as well and come to experience the same reality. And probably even more importantly, may those we don't like come to know you. <laughs> those who've hurt us, those who are our enemies, those who are difficult and damaging. Uh, may they come to know you as well, Jesus.